Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Lori, for your consistent vulnerability and leadership in our community. Just genuinely grateful for you. If you don't know me, my name is Gabe Quell. I'm one of the pastors here um, at Christ Community's downtown campus. And now that the word has been read over us, let us now turn our hearts afresh to prayer before we walk through the text together. Heavenly Father, we come holding fast to your promise that you've given your spirit to not just be within us individually, but among us corporately when we gather in your name. That your spirit will speak and reveal truth to us. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? May you make us receptive to your word. God, I recognize that every single person in here comes in with anxieties, fears, hopes, desires, longings. And I pray, Lord, that we would lay those down, not as a way of distancing our heart from them, but as a way of surrendering them afresh to you so that we might receive what you have in store for us today. We trust you. We anticipate you. <coughs> Guide us in the name of Jesus, we pray, and by the power of the Spirit, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, we are at the beginning of a pretty massive health crisis, <laughs> and maybe not the one you're thinking of, okay? Um, interestingly enough, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines a crisis as a difficult or dangerous situation that needs serious attention, okay? And when you avoid or ignore a crisis, we often say that someone is living in denial. It's like the crisis is right there in front of you. And you're acting as if this is nothing. You need to respond. You need to act differently. So what, what sort of crisis can we not ignore? And for that, I want to highlight two specific experts um, by the name of Tyler and Brendan. Tyler... Um, Vendor Wheel is the John L. Loeb and Francis Lehman Loeb Professor of Epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan Pu School of Public Health and Director of the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University. Did you write all that down? <laughs> Brendan Case is the Associate Director for Research of the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University and the author of The Accountable Animal Justice, Justification, and Judgment. And in the midst of the many dynamics that are going on in our world, where they see one of the greatest crises, and specifically health crises of our time right now, was released in one of their articles entitled, Empty Pews Are an American Public Health Crisis. Empty Pews Are an American Public Health Crisis. Now, not literally just pews. We don't have pews here. We have rows. But what they're talking about is the mass exodus of those no longer engaging church community on a regular basis, and the actual physical health, broader mental, sociological crisis that is actually causing for us as a broader society. So here I want to share with you some of their findings. The whole article is really great if you ever want to look it up. 
Um, and here's where they start. They lean into another research group, Barna Group, found that 10 years ago in 2011, 43% of Americans said they went to church every week. By February of 2020, that had dropped 14 percentage points to 29%. That is a really loud noise. I don't know what's going on, but it's oh, really... No. What's that? Oh, is that what it is? You know, so here, we're in this together, so we've got good sound dynamics behind this research. I just want you to think of, like, the intensity <laughs> of what I'm sharing yeah, with you today. I'm not ready to go outside. No, 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 no. So uh, think about this. It dropped 14 percentage points in February of 2020. February of 2020. That was before the pandemic. Just think about that. So down to 29%. Imagine how much more post-pandemic or in light of the pandemic as we experience more and more folks disconnecting for, from the church community. And this is what they say. Our findings aren't unique. A number of large, well-designed research studies have found that religious service attendance is associated with greater longevity, less depression, less suicide, less smoking, less substance abuse, better cancer and cardiovascular disease survival, less divorce, greater social support, greater meaning in life, greater life satisfaction, more volunteering, and greater civic engagement. In their article, each one of those items are hyperlinks to the various studies that go to support that statement. And then they go on to say, in the first place, all religious believers should be glad to know that religious service attendance in particular strongly affects health and well-being, and it is only natural that they would want to spread the word. But it shouldn't be left only to churchgoers and ministers to promote service attendance. Remember who's saying this? This isn't a pastor. Again, for example, we might wonder whether clinicians owe it to their religious patients to ask about service attendance as they're asking about other behaviors. That would be a bizarre situation, right? You're going in to get you know, a checkup with your doctor and like, now have you been going to church? Um, if this is true, if their findings are true towards overall health, there's something they're, they're really trying to highlight here for us as human beings. And as they get to the end of their article, they make a pretty audacious claim. They say... Going to church remains central to true human flourishing. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. Um, and I just want you to think, don't shout it out loud, but think, what are the feelings that are coming up when you hear that statement? Now, I, I've, had, I've had a lot of different conversations with a lot of folks who love the church, hate the church, de-churched, engaged with the church, questionable around the church, wondering about the church. And I, and I get it. And like all the different conversations I've had where it's like, hey, what they're saying, listen, if going to church really is central to human flourishing, maybe that's true for some people, but it's not true for me. You know, maybe that's true for certain people who quote-unquote fit the mold of what the church is really looking for, but it doesn't work that way for me. What about all the people who've been hurt by the church? On and on the statement goes. And, and here's, I think it's actually really natural um, for you and for me to always assess truth claims out of our experience, right? It's just natural. It's what we do. Whether we like it or not, that's where we lean. And I also want to remind you that these, if these were pastors, I would be much more skeptical of even their own findings as a pastor. But they're not. Their bottom line is human flourishing. And as they've done studies, they've come to greater discernment and discovery that these types of communities, being engaged regularly, is central to our overall health and well-being as human beings. And listen, as a follower of Jesus, and especially as a pastor who didn't get into this gig because I thought it was a great moneymaker, um, like for me, like it, it raises the question, it begs the question, well, okay, so why did Jesus found the church then? So if this is what they're discerning, 
Why did Jesus found the church? Because it wasn't my idea, it wasn't anybody else's idea in here to start this organization, this movement, this gathering of people some 2,000 years ago. It was Jesus's. Now, I've been watching way too much sci-fi, okay, lately, because there's just a lot of really good sci-fi out there. Some of you have begged to differ. You're like, I've been watching Star Wars for years. I love Star Wars, all the things. This is way too big of a conversation for now. But <laughs> think about 2,000 years from now, how different the world might be especially since we find ourselves in a country that's not even 250 years old. How different it would be. Now go back in past, in the past 2,000 years where there's this no-name guy back in the backwoods of Nazareth who says, you know what? There is this ecclesia, this church, and I'm going to found it, and it's going to be built on me and what I'm going to do and what I have plans for in the world. And it's actually been anchored back all the way from the beginning. This is what I've longed to do in the world is through this group of people. And you think to yourself, what was the point? Why did you start all of this, Jesus? And it becomes apparent that he didn't start it to be a really good hobby because if you know anything about church, it's a lame hobby, okay? And I'd say that as a pastor. It's not a great hobby. You know, there's other better hobbies. It's not an extracurricular. It's not something you do when you get some spare time, but I can have a really intimate walk with the Lord but have no sort of connection with the church. It's not an extracurricular. And on maybe the opposite extreme, it's not, it, w it wasn't designed to be something that we do per duty, Meaning like we have to do this, we've got to drudge our way through it because then maybe God will be okay with me and I'll be okay with God. None of that was the design for the church. And actually, I think Andrew and, or Tyler and Brendan here have a brilliant insight to what actually the biblical narrative has been displaying to us about the church from the beginning. What Jesus had in mind with the church, it's this. Jesus had in mind... For the church, a place of wholeness where we would become more whole. The church was meant, as it's designed, to be a place where we belong. And in that, as we care for one another and are cared for, we become more the people we were designed to be, to be more whole. That's his intention. That's his design. A place that's for us, for you, for me. A different kind of us that's for the flourishing of all. And that's where it leads us that particular wrestling leads us to our text today in James chapter 5. We've been in this journey towards real faith, right? Because that's James' heart, that's his intention, his desire, is that we don't have this fake or artificial faith, but real faith. And when we have real faith, it shapes the way we engage suffering and trials, it shapes the way that we pray, it shapes the way we long for things or even assess our own desires, it shapes the way that we talk about one another and to one another, it shapes the very way we structure our plans or what we can anticipate out of our plans, on and on. And then when James goes to close out this letter, where does he end? But with the inner workings of the church. You see, for James, he wants us to know that real faith, it only grows in a church family. Where there's sickness, where there's frustrations, where there's mess, where there's heartache, real faith only grows in a church family, where there's healing, where there's hope, where there's reconciliation, where there's joy. Real faith only grows in a church family. And what he won't let us miss is as we wrestle towards understanding God's desires for our life, you cannot be whole without belonging to a church family. You and I, that's our big idea for this morning. You cannot be whole without belonging to a church family family. And listen, the goal is not just mere attendance, but it's belonging. It's belonging. 
What does it mean to belong to a family? Because listen, we're in a world right now that is hell-bent on not belonging to anyone. One of our chief values is what? To be independent. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me where to go. I am the master of my own vessel and so on. But instead, James says, actually, the place of freedom, the place of restoration, the place of wholeness is belonging to a church family. But we've forgotten what it means to even belong to a church family. And so here's what we're going to discover as we walk through this brilliant text this morning. We're going to see three habits that actually position us as we practice them to grow in a stronger bond with one another. It's going to strengthen our faith and simultaneously lead us in a path of deeper wholeness. Okay? So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5 as we unpack what it means to belong to a church family. Okay? Three things. Now here's the first habit. Belonging to a church family means we pull together rather than run away in crisis. We pull together rather than run away in crisis. Look with me, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, the first two questions that James lays out there in verse 13 are by way of review and a little more rhetorical. He's already been talking about suffering. He's already talked about who is the author of every good and perfect gift, but God up above. That's James chapter 1, where he's really trying to get us rhetorically is to the third question. This is why he spends all of his time unpacking this. What do you do when, when life doesn't go as planned, when a health crisis hits? And really, you could fill the, a lot of things in that particular blank. You could say, when a relationship fails and you feel dangerously alone, when your job fails and you feel dangerously at risk, it's this place of utter vulnerability where death is knocking on your door. Where do you go? And James, he wants you and I to know that the people of faith, people who are actually longing for wholeness, they don't isolate they reach out to their church family. That's what it means to belong, is that when crisis hits, we don't go running away, we don't hide in shame. Instead, we reach out in crisis, and we cry for help. We look for the church not to be at arm's length from us so that we can do what we want when we want, but to invite them to even lay hands on us, this intimate interconnection and belonging. Now, I want to say a little something about oil. Um, there's a common, you know, wrestling with this particular text is, you know, anointing someone with oil. What's going on here? Now, this is not, you may think it is, but it's not the evangelical argument for why essential oils are so important um, in the conversation. Listen, I get your skin is the largest organ of your body and all these things, and I deeply believe in, like, using these things at different points. But that's not where this is coming from, and nor is that what this is pointing to. Instead, the very biblical theme of anointing that's all across both the Hebrew Scriptures and into the New Testament is this language of anointing had a way of setting someone apart for God to uniquely work. That was the emphasis. That's what the picture is. It's a way of the community coming together and setting someone apart for God to uniquely act. Now, what we also don't see in this text is that every time you pray for someone to be healed in any particular way, that oil has to be a part of the equation. So it's not a necessity, but instead, as human beings who are embodied, matter 
is helpful. This is why we partake in communion with real bread and real juice. Rather than just talking about what Jesus did in the past, we engage real tactile elements because as embodied creatures, those are helpful. And probably the most probable explanation of what is happening here is that in the anointing of setting someone apart for God's uniquely work, this was a symbol for God's unique presence that that person in some ways embodied could actually feel as a representation of God uniquely touching them as a way of saying, God, yes, you are with us, you are working. And that's okay to engage the senses and to engage the body. But it's a symbolic gesture towards God's presence uniquely among his people in prayer. And that's what I want to make clear. I do a quick aside on oil because everybody's curious about oil. But the main focus is the prayer. That's the key component of this text, which shows up again and again and again. And we're going to return to that here in a moment. But first, let me ask you this question. When you're in the midst of crisis, when you're in the midst of life, when it doesn't go according to plan, do you isolate? Do you say, you know what? I can't bother anybody with this. I don't have time to really reach out. Nobody's going to take me seriously, or I don't think it's really that serious. So you just try to handle it on your own. You white knuckle your way through life in silence and in isolation, or do you reach out? Are you willing to reach out? That's a question I want to raise to each and every one of us. Are you willing to reach out? That's really what we see here. Who has the onus? It's actually not the church leaders to know every bit of everybody's business. The person who has the responsibility is the person who's sick to say, hey, I'm in crisis and I need the church to come around me. It's actually an admittance that you can't make it on your own. If that person does not cry out, then the church is not expected to show up. You can't just read someone's mind or constantly be reading someone's mail. We have to be able to communicate our needs one to another. Are you willing to reach out? Are you willing to let the church show up in your life? Be careful with that. Right. Are you willing to let the church show up for you? Now, there are definitely unhealthy expectations on what the church should be and do, but as you engage in that conversation, are you willing to even start the conversation? Are you willing to allow the church to be the hands and feet that the Lord Jesus had designed the church to be as it's pursuing your wholeness? If you long to belong, if you long for wholeness, you will learn to reach out and be willing to reach out. Now, number two, the, the second habit that helps explain what it means to belong to a church family is belonging to church family means we pray for others expecting God among us, among us. Look with me, James chapter 5, verses 15 through 18. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its Fruit. James is making it explicit that when we reach out and the community of faith gathers together and we pray to our father, we should expect him to come and work for his family, among his family, and to pursue its good. There's this deep sense of expectation here. There's not really any wiggle room that makes me very uncomfortable when I think about my own life. It's like, well, I'm looking for the yeah, but somewhere in there. And, and to be clear, there's an attempt at times to even over-spiritualize, like where it says, 
you know, and the Lord will raise him up. Oh, you mean in the last day. That's what you're talking about. Like when we all are raised up, that's what you mean. No, the text here is pretty explicit and pointing to when somebody is sick, they experience prayer, and then they get out of bed. Like they raise up because they've been laid out flat. Once again, I have desires because it feels really risky <laughs> to be as bold as James is here at the end of this text. And what we see in verse 14 is that they pray in the name of the Lord. Now, what, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean they've just got this magical mantra that if they just say in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen, suddenly things are going to be... No, 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 no. That's a way of saying we pray in line with your will. In the name of the Lord is the sphere of his desires, his purposes, and his kingdom agenda that it might be accomplished through our prayers. God, we want what you want here. Would that be the case? May your name and all that that represents... Be accomplished through our prayers. And then you get to this dynamic statement of the prayer of faith. Now, I was wrestling through this the past couple weeks. Like, who's, who's the one who's got the faith? And what does that even mean, right? Because who doesn't want prayer of faith? Man, I want prayer of faith. Now, who's the person who's got the faith? It's actually not the sick person. The sick person here in this text has already exercised their faith by reaching out to the church community. They said, hey... I need help. Are you going to show up? And the church is like, yeah, we're going to show up. And then they showed up around because this person was on their deathbed and they're going to gather around. It's really those who are praying for that person who are exercising the prayer of faith. Now, what is this prayer of faith? I was helped by Keith Warrington. He's the vice principal and director of doctoral studies at Regents Theological College in England. He's also written Discovering the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and Healing and Suffering, Biblical and Pastoral Reflections. No slouch. Uh, really helpful. Here And the way that he summed up the wrestlings around what is this prayer of faith, I just thought was helpful to share with us. He says, the prayer of faith is best identified as knowledge of God's will for a particular situation when no scriptural guidance is given. The prayer of faith is best identified as knowledge of God's will for a particular situation when no scriptural guidance is given. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make me feel comfortable. It doesn't make me feel in control. Um, it makes me feel very much at the whims of God's desires, purposes, and will. And I actually think that's an indicator that we might be on the right path. <laughs> Whenever I try to control God and feel like I'm the one who gets to dictate his path, that's usually a sign that I've overstepped some bounds, or maybe, just maybe, I don't have a big enough imagination for what he might do. And I want to be clear, knowledge of God's will in the midst of that great is different than desire for his will. For example, when my wife and I were pregnant with our first child, Judah, and we were in the hospital two to four weeks on and off, we had people who were praying for us, who were reaching out to us, who were saying, God's going to bring you through, and Judah's going to be born healthy, and everything's going to be fine. And he wasn't. And he wasn't born alive. And not everything was fine. And I know there was well-intentioned communication in the midst of that. But I wrestled through faith. I wrestled and wondered and, and, and asked myself, did I not have enough faith? What was going on in the midst of that moment? But listen, I was really helped by Craig Blomberg around this particular text where he says, somewhere in our prayers, we must find a balance between never expecting God to heal <laughs> and requiring him to heal on demand. There's a level of humility that comes with the beauty of asking our Father like Jesus invites us to when he even is instructing us to pray when he says, listen, if you come to the Father and you ask him for bread, 
He's not going to give you a stone. He already knows the good thing he's going to give you before you even ask. Like that's the kind of character that our father has. But simultaneously, we've seen in the beginning of James chapter 1 that there are certain things that God allows in our lives that we would never choose, like trials and suffering. Why? That we might become more whole. But we often don't have the courage to even ask or the wherewithal to know how to pray for those things. But he longs for our better good than we're willing to ask for ourselves. And so there is an element where we come praying in his name and longing for his will and expecting him to work, but also with the humility to understand that there are spaces and times where we have no idea what that actually is going to look like, but that he is still good and holy and right. And then James moves on and he says the prayers of a person who has like this intimate relationship with God. He says the righteous person. This is a Micah 6.8 person, someone where God says he has shown you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to what? To do justice and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. It's fascinating. Lori brought that up earlier before she even read the text. I love the intersinking here and what God's doing. That is what we see. Someone who's intimately walking with the Lord such that it shapes their social location as well as their personal intimacy integrity. And they're walking with the Lord in all aspects of their life. And when they pray and they pursue, they're in that intimate relationship with him. God's working through that. And I want James to give me more. I'm like, give me some bullet points, James. <laughs> like, how can my friend? And then he goes, I'm just going to illustrate it. Cool, James. And he says, look at Elijah. Now, listen. What he does here is phenomenally, like, just mind-blowing for me. Because if he's writing, as most scholars believe, to a predominantly Jewish audience who now see Jesus as the Messiah and are scattered across the Roman Empire, nobody would have thought Elijah was their example. Everybody would have thought, Elijah is way better than I'll ever be. Ever. Like, I mean, the things that God did through Elijah in the history of Israel are just off the chain. I mean, it's like astounding, and you're like, well, I mean, I'll never be like Elijah, but, you know, and, you know, they'll list somebody else who, you know, had some moments of, like, faithfulness along the way. But then what does James say? This is so important. He highlights someone they think they could never have, they don't have the imagination to ever think that, that God could do what God, could, God could do through them what God did through Elijah. And he's like, like Elijah, who has a nature just like ours? <laughs> do you see that? Instead, he's naming someone they feel like that's way outside of their scope. And he's like, Jesus died for you. He's given you his spirit. And he had a nature just like ours, meaning what God did through Elijah, he can actually do through you. And then he goes to this unique moment in the history of all of Elijah's like astounding things that God did through him. And he highlights the one where Elijah prays. And then for three and a half years, there's a drought. And then he prays again. And then there's rain. And you're like, what in the world? What does that have to do? That's not like a real inspiring story. I don't have a farm. How does this engage like my agrarian, non-agrarian life? Like, what are you thinking? Here's why. And somebody told me I snap a lot. So I apologize if it kind of starts popping up. But here's the deal. The reason James brings up Elijah here, at least I believe the reason J James brings up Elijah here is because when Elijah is praying for the rain to stop, he's doing so because the whole nation or the whole community of Israel had turned their backs on God. They thought the rain came from these pagan gods. And he's like, remind them who is the true God. His prayer was anchored in the, the, the repentance and the restoration of the community writ large. The healing of the community, that God's name might be lifted up and his people might be restored to him. 
That was the centering point of his prayer. And then when that repentance began to take shape, when after God's name had been on display and Baal, this false god, had been demoralized through these various tests, he's like, bring back the rain. It was about the communal good and the centering on God's presence among them. Restoration and repentance. Elijah, a man just like us, a person just like us, with the spirit of God, pursuing the good of the people of God can experience powerful, powerful prayer. And here's the reality. There are certain gifts that God will only give through prayer. There are certain gifts that we have to come asking for him, and he's so eager to give. But are we willing to humble ourselves in prayer and come and ask? Now, this is especially true, as we see here in this text, when it comes to healing of any sort. And this is where Christians start to get weird, okay? We as Christians, we can get weird. Some of you are like, wait, tell me how Christians can get weird. Let me tell you how Christians can get weird. Sometimes we can read this passage and say, oh, we're supposed to pray for the sick and God will heal. Therefore, we should ignore all medicine um, and, and disregard anybody who's a physician or a doctor who do, who's done some extraordinary training and insight. Listen, that is not what this text is saying. There's actually not a text that says that. Um, and actually, the, the common framework for the first century Jewish person when they came to faith in Jesus was more like a Sirach chapter 38, where it reads, honor the physician. Or it goes on to say, the Lord created medicines from earth, and the sensible man will not despise them, while also saying the healing comes from God. They did not see a contradiction between healthcare and trusting in experts while simultaneously praying that God would act. That was not a framework for the early followers of Jesus. They may not have had access to some of those opportunities, and so God met them in their under-resourced components, but it was not a dismissal of those who have actually understood and done some research and training in the dynamics of human care. Prayer and health care are not at odds. And the point here is not to dismiss any other physical care. Instead, the point here is to highlight how prayer has always been a mechanism to bring God's people together. Once again, it's about belonging to a community this is not a passage where it's about you going in your prayer closet all by yourself. This is a passage that's highlighting when you belong to a community, this is what it looks like. To a church community, we actually gather together and we pray and we expect our Father to do something because of what the Son did by the power of the Spirit who's among us. That's what we come to expect. And so let me ask you, are you willing to let people pray for you? And I know maybe that sounds like a silly question, but simultaneously, like, you have to admit weakness. You have to admit that you can't do that on your own. And frankly, are you willing to let people pray for you because you feel like you praying by yourself isn't enough? Are you willing to open yourself up to that? There's a level of vulnerability, isn't there? To let the church be what God has designed it to be, this beautiful community that's coming around pursuing your good. Are you willing to let that take place in your life? If you long for belonging, if you long for wholeness, you will. You'll let them pray for you. But let's move to the third habit. The third habit of belonging to a church family, it's this, is that we pursue generous authenticity with one another rather than avoiding one another. Look with me, James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
Interestingly enough, this is the only passage in the whole of the New Testament where it invites or commands you to confess your sins one to another. It's also important to note um, that this is not a confess to one and then they just listen. This is not you confessing to a spiritual elite. There's a mutuality that's happening here. You're each confessing your brokenness to each other. That's actually really important for trust and healing and reconciliation and wholeness long term. Not just unloading on someone, but giving and receiving. And how that cultivates a humanism and a realism one with another. Now, what we see here in the text, especially around this language of healing, is that righteousness in and of itself does not necessitate healing. But what we do see is that sin in the camp will definitely stop healing. And, and we actually see this with Jesus on multiple occasions where there's a paralytic that's brought to him. And what's the first thing he says? Your sins are forgiven. And they're like, hey, that's not his need. And he goes, no, nah, it's kind of connected. <clears throat> and then he says, rise up and walk. And then there are other passages in scripture where you do see destruction coming upon someone because of sinful decisions, whether it be sins of ignorance or sins of willful uh, guidance. But at the same time, once they become revealed, they are acknowledged and owned. And in those spaces, it's not like someone's always like, I must have done something terrible. No, once it's revealed, it's like, oh, yeah, that was me. Um, like, there's clarity around that. So you don't have to live in constant fear that if there's sickness in your life, it's because of something you don't know about. No, 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 no. It's not always the case, but sometimes it is. And confessing one to another is a really healing and powerful pathway towards what God wants to do in our lives. Now, the reason... I end with this one out of these three habits. And the reason that James goes here, I believe, as well, is listen, if you're not in the midst of crisis reaching out to your church family, if you're in the midst of crisis not willing to allow people to pray for you, you'll never get to confession. Confession is way more intimate. It's a space where you reveal a sense of brokenness within you that you long for someone else to meet you with grace and to communicate, I'm going to walk through this with you. That is next level intimacy, next level vulnerability. If you won't do the first two, you'll never get to this one. Not in a healthy framework. And yet, if we close that off, we'll never experience the wholeness that God has longed for, even that he even commands us to do it here in his word. We're missing out on all that God wants to do in and through the church. And I know for each one of these, transparently, we could spend whole sermons, whole sermon series on each one of these habits. Because scripture does dovetail on many different aspects of each of these. But today I just want to ask this question. Are you willing to be honest about your brokenness with others rather than hiding? Are you willing to be honest about your brokenness with others rather than hiding? Are you willing to be honest and authentic about the places you're struggling and, and maybe on the flip side, are you the kind of person, are you asking God to make you the kind of person who can receive people in their brokenness so that when they do speak with you, you don't weaponize their words in a moment of revenge later on? These are really powerful categories and important toward our wholeness and healing as a people of faith. And this is what Jesus has designed for the church. This is what he longs for, a place that reaches out where we have the safety to kind of say, hey, I need you in my life right now. Can you come around me? And as we come around, we pray expecting God to do something and to be among us. And in that space, there's even places of confession mutually one to another in the ways that we've dropped the ball one with another. Is that what you're, and here's the question I have for us today. Is that what you're looking for? Absolutely. Good. Is that what you're looking for today? A place 
where you can receive and actually confess the ways that you've missed the Let's drop do the ball. That now. Well, we did some confession earlier, and I'm glad you have that spirit because we're going to get to some other things in a minute, Charlie. And even some of that belonging to community, walk with me on that pacing, right? So stay with me. So in the midst of this, is this what you're looking for? I know for some, maybe, just maybe, we came today because I know my own heart. <laughs> some days, I just want a gas station. I just want to be filled up, you know? It's like, fill me up and send me out. Maybe some other days, I just want the McDonald's drive through experience. Give me some spiritual goodies, you know, and I'll be on my way. And other times, I just want the Netflix experience. Give me a little bit of inspiration today so I can forget about my troubles that are coming tomorrow, and I'll face those tomorrow on my own. But if you're trying any of those strategies and longing for wholeness, it's a fool's errand. And I know it's hard because you know why it's hard? Because pastors like me, we, lean out, we lead out of our woundedness sometimes. And so we don't create those spaces. Sometimes the church, church people respond out of their woundedness. You know, hurt people hurt people. You know, one of my favorite things that my wife has told me is around the phrase hurt people hurt people. Instead of thinking of it as reciprocal, think of it as a chant. Hurt people, hurt people, hurt me. I just thought that was brilliant. <laughs> I was like, oh my, that sounds really damaging. Um, and she's like, that's what I always think every time I hear that. And I was like, yeah, that's not what it means. I, but you're hilarious. That's, um, that's not what I mean. But yeah, sometimes we come in with our hurts and then we just spew them on someone else. And then we've got our own wounds. We've been hurt by someone in the past. And so we keep ourselves so guarded that we never even open ourselves up to experience life from someone. We don't want to take the risk again because we've got a wound from the last time we tried. But listen, if you long for wholeness and you lean into belonging to a church, you're going to find it. It may not be on the near side, it might be, but it will be on the far side. The journey alongside of others. If you're longing for wholeness and you're willing to belong to a church family, you know what? God might even use you to bring about wholeness in someone else. And what a great gift that is. But often... And this is where faith comes in. We don't even discern whether it's actually meeting us and cultivating this wholeness until you've begun belonging to a community. It's hard to always see it on the outside. You have to lean in to begin to experience it, to know for sure. And sometimes you can ask yourself if it's even worth it because it doesn't go according to plan. You know, there's a story of Amy Carmichael she was a missionary to India at the turn of the 20th century. And there was someone within her context by the name of Panamal. Um, she had contracted cancer in 1913. And she was reading James chapter 5. And so what she did is she said, you know, I'm going to try this. I'm going to pull together the leaders of the church. And they anointed Panamal with oil. And they began praying, longing, genuinely believing that this was in line with God's will and his purposes in the world. And so they were around her praying that God would bring healing and deliverance. And as they were praying fervently and, and over throughout the night, the next day, Panamal declined significantly and continued to decline and continued to decline until she died. And that was a wrestling for Amy Carmichael. But I want you to think about this, even in the worst case. Think about her death. What was happening around her death? She was surrounded by people who were pursuing her good on the final minutes of her life, praying that God would show up. And what's the last thing she sees? But people loving her all the way until she finally shows up to God. 
Listen to me, man. As, as Elizabeth Elliot wrote, her warfare was ended, but it was surrounded by people who were pursuing her good. The worst case with Jesus and his body is better than most best cases without him and his body. Because there is going to come a moment in every single person in this room until Jesus returns that we will meet our death. You may live to be 106, 110, but that's the upper ceiling, friends. And at that point, who's going to be surrounding you? This is the beauty of the church. This is why Jesus designed the church. Not to be a hobby, not to be an extracurricular we can engage sometime, but a place where we actually begin to grow in wholeness together. If we lean in, if we belong, if we continue to pursue one another, if we expect God to actually do something when we pray together, this is the kind of family God wants to cultivate. And you're here, so that's step one. <laughs> the next step is leaning in. Real faith longs to join a church and being a caring family. And so here's what I want to invite us to do today. We've been exploring and talking about what belonging looks like. But now we're actually going to practice it. We're going to try um, creating a space just for a few moments here together for us to grow together. And, and listen, I know this is going to take a lot of courage for us as a congregation, especially, you know, if we're coming in with certain expectations today. But here's what I want to invite you to do. If you're going through something right now and you just need some prayer, it could be big, it could be small, I'm going to invite you to stand or raise your hand in a minute. So, Ben, I want to invite you guys to come on up. And you can be playing behind that. But I'm going to invite you to stand or raise your hand and ask for prayer. And if you're around that person, I want you to either extend a hand, I want you to go near to that person. And all you have to do if you're the person who raised your hand or stood is to say your name. You don't have to go into what you need prayer for, okay? Instead, just say your name and let people pray for you. Let them know that you have a need for them to be praying for you. And some of you are like, man, Gabe, that is not what I was looking for this morning. Listen, this is what we need, even if it wasn't what we were looking for. And I know some of you are going to be like, man, I don't... I just don't have the strength for that right now. And that's okay. Use this as a time to pray for others. Pray for me. I've got a lot of stuff I got working on. You know, like I need your help. I need your prayers. But we need to be doing that for one another. So here in a moment, we're going to take a moment and I'm going to invite you to raise your hand and stand and those around you can pray for you. Even if it's someone across the way, you can extend a hand or just be praying for them quietly and pursuing God's presence among us in this place, bringing about a cultivation of hope and encouragement and wholeness. And then in a moment, after a moment's passed, I'm going to come back up and I'm going to transition us to the Lord's Supper. You can continue to be praying. This isn't like hardcore scripted or controlled or any of that type of stuff, but you can come to the Lord's Supper after we've prayed together and gather around and remember what God in Christ has done for us. And then we'll turn to song. Does that sound good? Everybody with me following along? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Right now, I just want to open this floor up. If you've got something you need prayer for, just stand, raise your hand. And guys, if you guys want to go ahead and play, and then we'll wrap around y'all and care for y'all and pray for one another.